are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Good morning. God's chosen servant. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Amen. Thanks, Heather, for reading for us. Well, it has been fun to follow along with the trip over in Israel and the Holy Land. And at the same time that we are in this place of Scripture this morning in Matthew 12. This is, I think, just one of those little God deals. You ever just see the little details of life or it seems that God delights in aligning certain things. We didn't plan this whatsoever, but the trip itinerary yesterday and today, so Saturday, Sunday, has had our group of 33 traveling around Galilee. And where are we this Sunday in Matthew chapter 12, traveling around Galilee? And we would need to look at the beginning of chapter 11 to see that. That's where the place marker is. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And that's been the trip itinerary these days. Cana and Nazareth and Capernaum. And I think it's so like God that Jesus' ministry would start in a place like Galilee. It wasn't viewed as an important place, certainly not compared to Jerusalem or Judea. Have you ever been to an unremarkable place on vacation? Where people at work or school ask you where you went and you're almost a little sheepish about it? I remember the one year when I was a kid, my dad got to pick the family vacation spot. And so we could go anywhere in the country. It was one of those timeshare things, you know, where you pick your spot. And so this was the year my dad got to pick, and he picks Iowa. <laughs> Walleye fishing on Lake Okaboji. Now at this stage of my life, that might actually interest me a little bit more, but my dad was never allowed to pick the vacation spot again after that year. <laughs> so Galilee is this unremarkable, normal, ordinary place, and it's where Jesus was raised and lived out much of his ministry. And we've been traveling through the middle portions of Matthew here during the season of Lent, a series called Come to Me, A Lenten Journey with Jesus. And here we are in Matthew 12. We're learning about the person and work of Christ and what it looks like for you and I to come and follow him. And as we look at the text before us, what I'd like to do is begin with the narrative setup of the first few verses. Then when it comes to the Isaiah quote that is given, we're going to learn some things, five things specifically, about Jesus. And then to close, we're going to translate those five into what it means to follow him. So those three sections this morning, narrative, Jesus, 
discipleship in that order. And what we'll see is the picture of a Savior who is extraordinarily different from any earthly king. The picture of a king who leads as a servant and who leaves us a true example of servant leadership. It is a costly call to follow him. But I'm wanting to share with you today through this text that it is the best decision you could ever make with your life. So let's take a look together and we look at first this narrative section. Now I'd like to read these lines again and we'll just comment as we go on our way through. And this sets up that Isaiah passage. So Matthew twelve fifteen, Aware of this, it says, Jesus withdrew from that place. Now when we read this, we recognize we're jumping into the middle of a longer story. And we want to check this reference about, you know, what is it that he became aware of? What is the this in that statement? And if we would glance up, we'd see the line immediately preceding verse 15 says, but the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So that's why Jesus withdraws from that place. That's what he is aware of, that they're trying to kill him. And it is not time for the cross yet. It's too early in the story. There is still work to be done. So Jesus withdrew, and he gets himself out of danger. And I think on this note, there's a lesson for you and I, that if we're following the way of Jesus, it may well lead us into danger. If you've made this decision to start following Jesus and extending his kingdom, you will tread into enemy territory. Because Satan is real and he does not like it when people align themselves with the things of Christ. And so I want to encourage you today. Maybe you have come under some fiery trial now or in the future. And we're reminded that the path that you and I are on is not neutral. If you're following Jesus, you are out there actively opposing the powers of this present darkness. And from time to time, you might have to withdraw from one place and go to another. Now, that doesn't mean you stop boldly living for Christ. It's just that there is a time to shake the dust off your feet and head somewhere else. And that's what Jesus does. It says in the next part of the verse, A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. We know that people were coming from all over the place at this point in the gospel to see Jesus. Mark's parallel of this story says that they were coming from as far away as Idumea. This doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I, but it's over a hundred miles away. And they are coming to see Jesus on foot. But we understand that, don't we? How far would you travel to receive healing from a chronic disease? Jesus' healing ministry shows us, on the one hand, his mercy. It says he healed everyone who showed up all who were ill. But his healings are also there to show us and to show the people who he is because a physical healing is visible evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And the people get it. That's what's going on here. They're coming to the conclusion that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Which leads us to verse 16. He warned them not to tell others about him. Now we run into that sometimes in the Gospels and you might ask yourself, well, Why would he tell people not to tell others? Doesn't he say actually the opposite of that at other points? 
Aren't we supposed to, as a church, do the opposite of this? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, he says at the end of Matthew. And it's true, but the difference, as you run into these passages, they're often called the messianic secret, has to do with timing. And we alluded to it earlier. Jesus still has work to do. There are three years here of ministry to fulfill before the cross. And he warns people not to tell others at this point because it will lead to confrontation too early. And so we see that Jesus avoids stirring up the crowds and their misunderstanding about the Messiah. You see, the typical person in Israel at that time had a deep longing to see the coming of the Messiah, the promised Savior, that this Savior would come and overthrow the Romans and restore the Davidic kingdom. That's why they would call Jesus Son of David. That's a kingly title. They're going to call him that later in this chapter. But their notions of what the Messiah would conquer and how he would usher in his kingdom are very different than what God was doing. So they understand Messiah on a human level, but God had greater things in mind. And that becomes vividly apparent when Matthew then segues into this Isaiah passage, and this is where we turn to next. That's that long quote in 18 to 21. This quote comes from, if you look at the footnote in your Bible, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And in fact, in Matthew, this is the longest Old Testament quote in his entire gospel, which should also tell us how important Matthew views this. And what I like to do here is pull from this passage what we are finding out about Jesus. It's kind of a summary of these verses. There's going to be five statements, and we won't land on any one of them very long, but we're going to name these five things. And the first of them is this. Number one, Jesus is God's chosen servant. It says, here's my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. The people had a lot of ideas, as we said, about the Messiah, what he would be like, what he would do. Being a servant was not on that list. The Greco-Roman world of the New Testament was one that was very stratified. There was a clear social hierarchy in ways that you and I as Americans can hardly imagine. This shaped everything about their daily life. Who your friends were, what kind of clothes or toga you wore. It affected what you ate, who you ate with, where you sat at the ballpark. All of these things. The wealth gap was enormous, much, much greater than we would see. Honor and recognition were everything. And at the bottom of the whole pecking order were the servants. This is why Jesus washing the disciples' feet was such a big deal. And this is why Paul's words in Philippians 2 are so significant. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a what? A servant. Jesus came as a servant. And Matthew makes the connection to Isaiah's suffering servant. And he says, see, don't be surprised. If you know Isaiah, then you know this is coming. These are the things God has had in mind. Number two, the second thing we learn about Jesus. Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, I will put my spirit on him. 
And we saw this play out earlier in Matthew, not in this series, but if you read in chapter 3, Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Jesus is given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is spirit-endowed. In Luke 4, Jesus quotes from another part of Isaiah, it's chapter 61, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he says at the end, and sits down. Jesus was given the Holy Spirit. Number three, we're moving quickly through these. The third thing we learn, Jesus proclaims justice to all nations. It's the second half of verse 18. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. Two things here I think need a little definition. The first is the word justice. Because you and I usually think of justice only in the legal sense of rendering the right verdict in a court of law. Or maybe we think about it in a moral sense when a perpetrator is brought to justice. But justice in the Bible is all of that and more. It's a much bigger definition. And one quote I ran into that I think put it well said, justice is the working out of God's good purpose for his people. That's justice. And that also leads to the other term we wanted to find. The people in this passage is all nations. The word that's used there in the original in the Greek is ethnos. And you can hear our English words related to that, can't you? Ethnic. Ethnicity. Jesus proclaims justice to all peoples of the earth. Not just the Jews. Not just the chosen frozen up here in Minnesota. R.T. France reminds us, This extension of God's purpose beyond Israel is not a new decision by God at the time of Jesus, but part of his long-declared purpose of salvation. This was God's intent. God had forecast this back in Isaiah, even earlier in the Old Testament, and Jesus came to fulfill it. And you just think across Matthew, and you see evidence of this. The centurion in Matthew 8. The boat trip to the other side of the lake, the other side of the tracks. You have the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. The Great Commission in chapter 28. God's heart is for all people, all nations to know him. And Jesus proclaims his justice to the world. Number four. Jesus is humble, merciful, and victorious. That's my summary of verses 19 and 20. Where it says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. The reed in Bible times was used for support or, do you remember in Ezekiel? Measuring. So when a reed would be bruised, which is another word for cracked or bent, it can't fulfill its purpose anymore. It's useless. The wick, the other picture here, refers to a lamp wick. And a smoldering wick was one that was too wet. Maybe it had fallen over into the oil or for some other reason was just sending off smoke and polluting the room. And it too had lost its purpose, which was to effectively light the room. And so what do you suppose the normal person does with a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? You throw it out. It's no good anymore. But that's not what Jesus sees. And what this is is a metaphor for Jesus' extraordinary desire. Listen to this. 
his extraordinary desire to seek out people who are otherwise damaged or disregarded. What anyone else would look past or throw away, he doesn't do that. He has not given up on you. He isn't quick to condemn. He isn't quick to write someone off. He has come to save and redeem. And in short, this is a description of a servant-hearted king who is humble and merciful. Remember, humility was not a sought-after virtue in their world. The Romans were all about honor. The Jews were all about their own righteousness. But Jesus shows us that true honor is found in humility. And real righteousness is displayed through mercy. If you are old enough, you can think back to that movie from the year 2000, The Gladiator with Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. And you remember when the gladiator is in the arena that the emperor, Joaquin Phoenix, signals to him with the thumbs down sign that he is supposed to kill his opponent who's on the ground. And what does the gladiator do? It's this iconic scene. He looks at the emperor, looks down at his opponent, and drops his weapon. He doesn't do it. And what then does the crowd give to him as a nickname? Maximus the Merciful. This is the upside-down way by which Jesus brings justice to victory. He doesn't do it like a Roman emperor. He is humble, merciful, and even in dying, victorious. And that brings us to the fifth thing we learn about Jesus, that he is the hope of the world. Verse 21, the last line that we read, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Now hope in the Bible means to trust in, to wait for something expectantly. It's a word in the Bible that exudes confidence, a confident expectation because it's something God has promised. And here the nations put their hope in Jesus' name. His name means his whole person, his identity, his mission, And it's in this sense that Jesus is the hope of the world. So that's our list of five. These five things that this passage tells us about Jesus. And now on the home stretch, I'd like to show you how these five things turn into lessons for you and I about discipleship. This will be the application part of our study. And you'll see how we can take each one of these five things that we learn about our Savior and we apply them to the life of a disciple. So here's number one. Number one, we get to follow the ways of a servant king. Let's go back to the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I referenced that from John 13. He finishes the task and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He answers his question and says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now that I have done this, Lord and teacher, Higher up on the hierarchy, he says, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. And how about Philippians 2 while we're at it, that other passage? It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then comes that part, taking on the nature of a servant. Sometimes we can forget that we are following a servant king instead of a political king. A servant king instead of a self-minded king. 
And we have the great honor of following his ways. Number two, second lesson for you and I. God has given the Holy Spirit to us. The same Holy Spirit that descends on Jesus is given to those who follow him. Jesus says in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, with a capital H, to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit. What a gift that we receive. The indwelling Spirit of the living God that He would lead us and grow us and work in us and comfort us and guide us. Number three, the third application, we get to proclaim justice to all nations. Jesus has given us His message. And we get to take it to the ends of the earth. We start here close to home, whether it's Lincoln Elementary or our local food shelves or the Twin Cities, and it leads us all the way to the other side of the world, places like Ukraine. Our crew in Israel right now, they're not just on a trip. They're there as a witness of this message. It leads us to places like Ethiopia, South Asia, England, Germany, and who knows where next as we bring the good news of his kingdom. Number four, we in turn get to be humble, merciful, and victorious in Christ. The same things that we see exhibited in Jesus, we get to practice them too. Humility is our code of honor. Mercy is our weapon. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see how these things apply. And finally, we take what we've learned about Jesus And we land on this statement that must become personal. Not that, number five, Jesus is just the hope of the world, but he is also the hope of my life. Have you come to that conclusion yet? Have you made this application? It's pivotal in your life, it's essential. Because you could theoretically just stay part of that large crowd that shows up and watch Jesus from the fringes. But no, he invites you specifically to come and follow him. To experience his kingship yourself. And I want to close just with the example of someone who I think learned this as a young man. I read about his story a few weeks ago and I just haven't been able to forget it. Anatoly was living in Irpin, Ukraine, which is an outer suburb of Kiev. If you look at it distance-wise, proximity, it's very much like Elk River to Minneapolis. And Anatoly was living in Irpin. He's 26 years old, was an IT professional, I think across this church family, the number of folks who work in IT. It's an everyday guy. He was recently married So a young married guy, his wife's name was Diana. And the other thing that you have to know about Anatoly is that he was a follower of Jesus. And he and his wife Diana had become members of Irpin Bible Church two years ago in 2020. Well, earlier this month, you might remember from the news, these different cities are highlighted. Irpin came under heavy attack. And the church there jumped into action. And was helping to evacuate people to safety. 
So much so that the local officials, the mayor and the city council, they started just referring their citizens to the church to be evacuated to safety. And there they were as a church evacuating 100 to 200 people per day. At the time of the writing of the article that I read, they had evacuated 3,000 people to the west to safety. And early on, Anatoly was one of them. He was getting his wife, Diana, and his family members to safety, and they landed in the west. And then Anatoly did something that he didn't have to do. He turned back around and went back to Irpin. And he became part of a skeleton crew of five people operating this rescue mission from the church, helping people get to safety. That is until one day, and that's when I was reading this article about this story. That was at the beginning of March. He found himself on a collapsed bridge, helping a mother and her two children across to safety when a Russian bombshell landed and took their lives. Eyewitnesses say that his last act, 26 years old, on this earth was to carry the suitcase of a young mother and her two children, hurrying them across to safety. Why would Anatoly do this? That's what I want to ask you. Why would he turn around when he was in safety and he would go back and he would risk his life on the front lines? Why not save himself and get to safety? There's one answer to that question. Because he was following Jesus. He was following the servant king. And the invitation to you and I is the same. Come and follow this servant king. We read last week that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And when you come and you learn from him, it will be the journey of a lifetime. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that is so much bigger than this life that extends beyond the grave. I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would answer this call to take up your yoke, to learn from you, to be in the service of one who is a servant king. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be marked by humility and mercy, that we would faithfully proclaim your gospel to the world. Would it start here, Lord? in each one of our hearts and minds. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.